Well, good morning. That was, uh, that was a beautiful time of worship, and what a, what a great song to end on as we, we move through our conversation of spiritual practices, meaning that there are elements of things that we put into our life that, that are uh, elements that allow us to grow in intimacy with Christ. As we talked about generosity, we talked about commitment to the church and community and, and what that means to grow in and, and connection and love and, and passion for the, the passion that Christ has for his people. And this morning, we're, we're jumping into another spiritual practice that I think is critical to, to just remind ourselves in terms of the rhythm of how we, we live our lives and what we do. And it's the spiritual practice of confession. Let me, let me enter into this conversation in a, in a different way. So uh, there's an autobiography uh, out there by Frederick Douglass, who was a, a slave way back in the 1800s, and he tells a bit of his story. And the story begins with the fact that he was taken from his mother as an infant. And he talks about how he was only allowed to eat this kind of runny sort of cornmeal. And, and as he grew up, he, was, he worked from, from sunup to sundown. And he, he navigated some of the most atrocious beatings that you can imagine through his, his young life. There were times where even his, his master beat him to the point where, where he almost didn't live. In the context of those things, as he carries on through his book, uh, he talks about the opportunity that began to surface for him to find freedom. And uh, he got excited about the potential to experience freedom, but uh, realized that he had two very major concerns that was, were holding him back from jumping into the reality of trying to escape the atrocious lifestyle that he had. And those two things were friendships. So the thought of leaving the small community that he had where people understood a a bit of his pain and the the insecurities and the challenges that he faced in the context of his life, the thought of losing that almost kept him there. The other one was really intriguing to me. And the other one was if it didn't work, he would have sealed his fate for the rest of his life. There wouldn't have been any opportunity to, to find freedom from slavery on his own anymore because if he had gotten caught, either he would have been punished to the point of almost death yet again or found himself just uh, under the, the scrutinizing eyes of his master every day. He eventually, in September of 1838, found freedom and uh, made his way up to, to New York and someone asked him the question, what is it like to be free? And these are his actual words. I left my change, my change, I left my chains and succeeded in reaching New York without the slightest interruption of any kind. I've been frequently asked how I felt when I found myself in a free state. It was a moment of the highest excitement I have ever experienced. I felt like no one who had escaped, I felt like one who had escaped the den of hungry lions. Here's why I want to enter into the conversation about confession through the lenses of Frederick Douglass. I think what he experienced gives us a bit of a window in terms of the challenges that we face with regards to slavery that we experience through sin. That there's this master, this taskmaster of sin that binds us and holds us to this place of feeling very similar feelings that Frederick Douglass felt. If I leave the life of sin that is attended to me for so long, I will lose all of the people around me. Or if this doesn't 
work, then I'm stuck forever, reminded of my emptiness and failures and inability to deal with my own sin. What what the Bible gives us when it moves us to this understanding of a spiritual practice of confession is really this reality of, of, of the sense that we need to see a few things accurately. One, we need to see sin accurately for what it does. And two, we need to see the reality of what Christ has promised us with regards to how sin has infected our lives and the fact that we need a a rescuer in the context of those things. So it's interesting. I want to give a slight definition this morning as we think about the spiritual practice of confession. In the Old Testament, Hebrew word for confession actually means to praise. It, It and obviously you're confessing that God is who he says he was, but, but it, it's translated as confession, but it's a sense of praise or, or worship that God has called his people to. In the New Testament, you get a lot of different aspects of confession, but the most typical one is, is this word that talks about saying the same thing that God says. <laughs> so here's the definition of confession. Confession is an act of worship where we're saying the same things God says. Saying the same things that God says. That, that doesn't mean just with regards to our own sin. It means that we're saying the same things that God says about himself as well as what God says about the implications and the challenges of sin. So it's a posture of worship that communicates the very things that God has already said. So when we engage in the spiritual practice of confession... What we're saying is, yes, the way that God says things are, are the way that they really are. And when he says these things are things that move us away from intimacy with God, that those are the actual things that move us away from intimacy with God. When he calls sin slavery, it's an accurate assessment of what sin really is. There's an assessment how God has ordered his world in such a way that we're actually just agreeing with what God has already said. And so when we engage in a spiritual practice of confession, what we're doing is admitting that the analysis that God has offered of our lives and all of the world around us is actually the accurate, truthful, reliable reality of how things really are. And so it moves us to this place of putting ourselves under the truth of what God has declared to be true. So what I want to do is we're going to jump into this conversation through Romans chapter 6. Now we were in Romans 16 last week and talking about the significance of how God has called us to engage and commit ourselves in community and how that draws us into intimacy with Christ. But if we back up a little bit, Romans chapter 6 is this pivotal chapter that becomes a conversation about sin. And it's a conversation about the understanding of what what sin is, what sin does, what Jesus has done in the midst of that sin, and the reality of how that works itself out in the context of all of our lives. And so it it gives us at least an understanding of the tension that exists when we address the issues of sin and as we look at sin from the standpoint of what the Bible says. So I want to read Romans chapter 6 for us this morning and just make a couple of applications really as we think about how God has identified sin, even our understanding of the implications of what that does in our lives and how we begin to move 
through the spiritual practice of confession, realizing that there is a level of dependency and honesty that is an act of worship for us is saying what God has already said and admitting that that's true and realizing that we need him in the process. So Romans chapter 6, we'll start at verse 1. And we're going to kind of, I'll read through the whole chapter and then I just want to make some observations. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, exclamation point. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him in baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. If you have your pencils or pens, I would circle that. There's freedom from the slavery of sin is what Christ has done on our behalf. Verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey your passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Verse 15. Well, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? So if this is really true and, and grace is what grace is, then that does, does that give us license to sin so that grace is bigger, right? The more you sin, the more you experience grace. <laughs> Paul again, by no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or obedience, to which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you now become or have become slaves to righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? 
for the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen and amen. Right, so here's, here's the significance of what Paul's leading us to in an analysis of sin. Is he, he unites it to an understanding of slavery and really putting us in a sense of, of asking ourselves the question, who's truly your master? And, and we answer that question by realizing that there is a sense in which sin has infested all of our, all of our lives. And often it draws us to places where we long for the things of temporal satisfaction over the reality of what the eternal promises that God has given us. And so what he's telling us is change masters, right? One, you have a, a master that only leads to death, that only cares about your destruction, that only wants more from you than you're willing to give and take you further than you're willing to go. Or you place yourself under the mastership of Christ, Meaning that the, the care, the concern, the love, the reality of our growth comes with an analysis and an understanding that there are things inside of our lives that don't need to be there. They don't reflect God's character. Confession is the entry point of admitting and saying what God has already said. So we look inside of our lives and we say to ourselves, okay, as I read the scriptures and I put myself under the truth of God's word and, and his authority, then what ends up happening in my life is I begin to realize that there are things that he's drawing out of me. Those things that do not lead to life, that only lead to death. And what God is giving me through faith in Jesus Christ is his work that leads to what the Bible calls sanctification. That there's this practice that takes place of confession where we're growing in an understanding of who he is and our lives are exhibiting his work. So acknowledging our sin before God reminds us of our continual need for the gospel. So this is really a critical point, I think, as Romans 6 draws out of us. Is that as you and I acknowledge our sin before God, it, it, it creates a level of humility in each of our lives where we're aware that we need to be reminded of the gospel on a daily basis. I'm going to tell you one of the most shocking things that you've probably ever heard. You still sin, right? You're not fixed. You and I still have issues that present themselves in, in the context of fractured relationships and, and challenges and struggles. We still are drawn as that beautiful hymn that was just sung, right? I am prone to wander and I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. We would attach an amen to that every day of the week because we know that it's true. We know that inside of our hearts, we are drawn to temporal satisfaction and our own earthly desires above and beyond the things that lead to eternal life. And so acknowledging that, not only just before God, but before one another, in the sense of what we're saying is that I am in desperate need of the gospel, not just once for salvation, but every day for sanctification. Amen. All the time. Like you and I as followers of Jesus Christ, as we encounter the word, as we come to church, as we worship, as we do our daily lives, as we go to work and we realize that there are people that are mean and don't like us or we're at school and there's challenges and there's bullies and there's struggles or there's rejection. All of those things were reminded of a daily, on a daily basis that, that we live in a world that is irreparably broken by sin. And we see it coming onto our front doorstep all the time. 
And so if we would say to ourselves, those people who hurt us most need the gospel of Jesus Christ to be the source of their change, we need to be reminded as well that we too, on a daily basis, need to admit that we need the gospel. You need to know that because of what Christ has done, you've been saved. You are a rescued, and I'm a rescued people. But I'm rescued because of my own willful sin. There are things that I do, ways that I think, behaviors that I have that aren't honoring to God. And I am a believer. I love Jesus and I care about him, his work in my life. And yet I still struggle with earthly desires and things that are not of God. I need to be reminded that the gospel, Romans 6, frees me from that sin. I don't live free all the time. I live as one who seems captured by that sin on a regular basis. And so I encounter Romans 6, and what does it tell me? You don't have to sin. You don't have to be dominated by these things. You've been freed by by Christ in such an amazing way that that the righteousness can, can exhibit and exude out of our lives because of what Christ has done. And I need to be reminded by the Word and by other people that the gospel still matters to me, not just for salvation, but for sanctification. I've been rescued. I have intimacy with Jesus because I've professed faith in him, 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah, but don't, it can't. It can't stop there. God is the, uh, the God who is not just saving you, but changing you. And so the practice of confession is admitting to God first, but also to one another that we need change, that we need to be developed and grown. So acknowledging our sin before God reminds us of our continual need for the gospel. And I think that that's an important step as we consider those things. Acknowledging our sin before God reminds us of our continual need for the gospel. But But there's more. And I love that. As you read the scriptures, there's always mores to the gospel. And here's what I want to do. I want to, if you got your Bibles, I'd love for you. It's not going to be up on the screen. This is just a test if you brought your Bible this morning. Um, But, or you can pull up on your phone or just have your phone there and fake it till you make it. But Psalm 19 is one of those ones that I think gives us a level of, of, significance that moves us beyond just the reality that God is changing us and that we know that we need the gospel. There's something more significant, or not more significant, but also significant in the context of that. Let me just read Psalm 19 for us real quick. And I know it's a, a, a bit of a bulk of scripture, but man, the more scripture we have, the better. So here it is, right? If, if, if confession is an act of worship where we're saying what God says, look where Psalm 19 leads us, a Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes like a bridegroom leaving its chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, he says, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteousness altogether. More to the, be desired than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them is there is great reward. Who can discern his heirs, David says, declaring me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of a great transgression. And here it is, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth, David says, and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Here's what I think happens when we practice regularly, even often throughout a day, the act of confession. Confession places our awe and fear in the right place. Confession leads us to look at the vastness of, and greatness of the God who loves us. And the, the God who not just loves us and has created the earth and day by day is pouring out speech. Like God is declaring himself as good every second you wake up. When you go to bed at night, God is declaring and proclaiming his goodness over you. And you can just look outside and you can see one star or a million stars. And you can know that God is speaking. In the context of those things, God is not only speaking, but he's relating. That there's a, a sense of intentionality that God has on behalf of his people where he's working. Look what David was praying for. Lord, save me from presumptuous sins. You, nothing's hidden from you. You know me. You know my individual challenges. You know those places where I'm not even aware of my own sin. Save me from those places where I would presume that I'm all set. Remind me that I'm not all set, that I need you with utter regularity, and I need to be reminded how much I need you. And then he asked them to, to, to protect me from having these sins have dominion over me, that I could become so blind to my own need of your work in my life that I would convince myself that I'm better than the person I sit next to. Lie. Right, but that's how Satan works is just to distort and deceive us that somehow in some way we don't actually need Jesus as much as we actually need Jesus. And so he tells us that acknowledging those sins, acknowledging our sins before God, actively confessing on a regular basis places our awe and fear in the right place. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, right? David in the most crippling moments and the, the worst decisions from being an adulterer to a murderer so, to someone who's leveraged power to get his own way. He begins to confess his sin before God. And Psalm 51, he says, I, I confess that I've sinned against you and you alone. And I used to think in my early walk with Christ that that would just be easier, right? That I could just say, look, I know that I've, I've done something wrong and I've hurt people, but it's just between me and God. And so other people don't need to worry about it. I'm just going to keep it here. I don't think that's what David's saying. I think he's saying that I am so gripped by the reality of my sin that the fact that I've offended a holy God bothers me to a greater degree than the fact that I've hurt other people. Confessing my sin to other people is easier 
because I realized that I've actually done things against a God who has loved me and pursued me and cared for me, and he senses the weight. And so what does he pray? He says, cleanse me, right? Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. The only place I want to be is an intimate relationship with Christ. And I need to realize that confession leads me to that place. Not just the first time, but every time. Because what we realize is that often sin creates a distance. So here's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if you and I sin, we lose our salvation, because I don't believe that that's true. I think God has secured us and allowed us intimacy with him, that we are preserved and protected as his people. You can't do something once you've confessed sin that somehow God would be like, I'm done with you until you figure it out and come back. I don't think that's the gospel. But I do think that the implications of sin itself is that it creates relational distance with God. How many times have you been captured by sin And the last place you want to go is the Bible. (laughs) Every time, right? Or you don't want to pray. You're not even sure what to pray. You've hurt and said things that you know and done things that you shouldn't have done. And in the context of those things, you just begin to march a bit away from intimacy with Christ. Here's what happens. Confession moves us back towards intimacy because it reminds us of our deep need for Christ. So, Ongoing repentance from ongoing sin is God's ongoing expectation. We will never not need to confess. I still, to this day, have to confess my sins to my wife because I've hurt her. And it's not just the one time. I make stupid mistakes as a stupid husband regularly. And she will come up here and she will tell you absolutely. Like there's just the same thing with my kids. I've placed myself in situations where the flesh wins. And I need to remind them that I see that what I did was wrong. I'm agreeing with God that what he says is accurate. A lack of confession undermines our hunger for forgiveness by convincing us that our sin is either too small or too big. Isaiah 59, and I'll just read this for you. 59 verses 1 and 2 says something very significant as Isaiah has been commissioned by God to communicate the truth of God to the people of God. There's an an interesting reality that happens in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. And you can circle these verses if you like, but they really struck me. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. So the issue with the relational gap that exists between the people of God and God himself not God's fault. It's not that he's not attentive. It's not that he's limited his reach or plugged his ears, right? He's not like the kid who doesn't want to hear his parents talking. So he sticks his fingers in his ears and says, no, 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 I can't hear you. God doesn't do that. He's ever attentive and his, his arm and his reach is to all. But here's what happens. Verse two, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So here's what I think Isaiah is communicating to the people of God is he's saying often the voices of our flesh and our own desires have such a louder influence in our life that it it begins to separate us from the truth and the voice of God. And here's what happens, right? We become so convinced that God is not listening and not hearing because we're still struggling with some said sin 
that what we say to ourselves is this is always going to be my life. This is always what I'm going to experience. And hopefully one day in eternity, I won't have to worry about those things anymore. And yet God is pushing and pursuing us to the reality that God wants to draw us away from our sin. Sin does not have the same power that the gospel does. Right? Yeah, we listen to the power of sin more regularly than we do remind ourselves of the power of the gospel. Romans 6 says we're free. We're slaves to righteousness. That for those of us who've placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we are now connected with an unlimited reservoir of strength and power no matter what challenge we face. Sin does not win. That's Calvary. That's what the cross tells us on a regular basis. And so it's not that your sin is too small, certainly not the case, nor is it that your sin is too big. It's that we have convinced ourselves that somehow in some way we see things beyond what God has already told us. And so we don't confess. The spiritual practice of confession is an act of worship where all we're doing is we're saying what God says. I agree with you, God, that it's not okay to in anger yell at my wife. I agree with you. You're right. I shouldn't do those things. I agree that because your word tells me that lying is not a good thing, even little white lies just to make myself look better is not a good thing. I confess that I need the gospel in those moments to remind me that deception is only an avenue for protecting the flesh. So finally, when we talk about spiritual acts of confession, I think it's certainly between us and God one-on-one, but I think it extends. James 5 tells us, right? If you confess your sins one to another, that there's an element that this confession is corporate, that part of what sin's hold has on us is that we want it to remain hidden in secret. So we'll tell God because we already know he knows, but we have a really hard time telling other people. I think the Bible, as it grants freedom in the truth of the gospel from sin, moves us to being open and vulnerable with the realities of what sin looks like and how it's captured our attention and that we need one another to confess that sin to. I'm going to give a little plug for a couple of weeks as well as a a bit of a, well, let's just call it a public service announcement. So the PSA of Park Springs is in the next couple of weeks, we're going to finish spiritual practices. But then we're starting a series. And the series is going to be called Taboo, (laughs) meaning that there are things that we don't normally talk about in the context of the church, right? The fact that there are situations and elements and and areas that have gripped our attention, we know that the word addresses, but we don't want to jump into it because it's just really complicated and really hard. The Taboo series is going to go on for a few weeks, but the main focus of it is going to be dealing with issues of sexual brokenness and specifically pornography. And if there's any epidemic spiritual epidemic that exists in the context of our world. It's the reality of access and addiction to that said struggle. And the Bible gives us freedom from those things, but we tend not to talk about it. And if there's any place that we want to remain hidden, it's in the area of sexual brokenness. It's hard. And yet, the Bible compels us to move to the reality of what it means to allow us, like, and Jared said this numerous times in his sermons, that we need to struggle in the light because in the darkness, we think that we actually have more power over sin than we actually do. And we're not willing to admit that sin actually has power over us. And so what we want to do as Jared and I are moving into this sermon series is 
is really trust the provision and the power of the gospel to remind ourselves that Romans 6 tells us we've been freed from the, the, the penalty of sin, but we've also been freed from the power of sin. And so we move into trusting that the Lord is going to work in significant ways. Now, we'll give more details as time goes on because I know that there's going to be more elements that are a part of the conversation. But I want you to know it's partly because we realize that the spiritual practice of confession is being honest with one another. (laughs) Being honest that there are struggles and challenges that exist in each of our lives that we would just rather handle on our own. And what that does is that does disservice to the fact that God has given us one another to walk through these things with. We fear judgment. We fear rejection. I know the weight of what that seems and what that feels. But if confession is what the Bible says confession is, then our awe and fear needs to be in a different place. Not the fear of man, but the holy reverence before God. Max Cato says it this way. Confession does the soul, does for the soul what preparing the land does for the field. Before the farmer sows the seed, he works the acreage, removing the rocks and pulling the stumps. He knows that seeds grow better if the land is prepared. Confession is an act of inviting God to walk the acreage of our hearts. There's a rock of greed over here. Father, I can't budge it. There's a tree of guilt near the fence. Its roots are long and deep. And may I show you some dry soil too crusty for seed. God's seeds grow better if the soil of the heart is cleared. There's a helpful image to consider. So here's the final thought that I just want to leave you with. Confession binds us to Jesus and not to our sin. Confession, the act of worship, where we're saying what God has already said, unites our wandering hearts to Christ and allows our identity to be so connected with Him that that sin doesn't become our identity. Our our identity becomes children of God. And confession reminds us that we are people of His pasture. We are His and, and we're not bound by sin. We don't have to live under the slavery of it, its mastery over our lives. We have chosen and allowed ourselves through the act of confession to allow Christ himself to be the tender master of our souls. Confession, the act of daily, regularly, minute by minute, reminding ourselves of the gospel binds us to Jesus and not to our sin. So here's the encouragement this next week. I mean, if you don't know what your sin is, ask your spouse. They'll tell you. <laughs> Literally, like ask a friend. Whatever it might be. There are areas of our life where we know that we struggle with sin and that we need to confess those things. Read Psalm 32. Read Psalm 51. And just hear the confession of this man who is epically failed and this man you know what it was said about him it's a man after god's own heart that's how the bible describes david and yet he is now an adulterer and a murderer and a power hungry leader and yet as he confesses and comes to the realization of god's washing power and provision he's reminded of his identity (laughs) he never lost being a man after god's own heart He just allowed his flesh to enslave him. And I imagine that for many of us, that might be our story. And so 
I would just ask that throughout the rest of this week, you would consider areas that you would need to confess and certainly bring those before the Lord. But take the risk of allowing one trusted person in, whoever it might be, and tell them what you're struggling with as well. Confession binds us to Jesus and not to our sin. Let me pray.